If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6, we begin this morning in verse 9 and continue on to the end of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. Though we speak in this way, Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, <clears throat> things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that you would give us uh, wisdom this morning uh, to be able to understand uh, what is before us. We pray that you would give us uh, eyes to see and ears to hear, the, a heart of faith, the Lord, that we might uh, reflect that same faith that Abraham exhibited when he heard your promises, Lord, that we would hold tightly to the promises of God as well through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. The Eugene Lang College of Liberal Arts was founded in 1972. Uh, after the self-made millionaire, perhaps you're familiar with him, um, he greatly changed the lives of 59 sixth graders back then when he basically made a promise to them if uh, for those of you who know uh, he was asked to you know a millionaire is asked to go speak to a bunch of sixth graders what do you say to a bunch of sixth graders about their future especially when you go to east harlem new york and the average student drops out of school before even ninth grade uh, how could you possibly change their mindset uh, in their future and any hope of what their prospects might be. Uh, then on top of that, this is a, an old white guy trying to tell a bunch of Puerto Rican and, and black students how to live their lives. That makes it even more complicated, as you can imagine. Uh, and so he realizes he had a bunch of notes with him and immediately threw them aside because he, well, what kind of pep talk can you give to sixth graders that will change their mind? And so he uh, ripped up his note cards and then he just looked at them straightly and and, and, and said to them, if you stay in school, I will pay for your college tuition, every single one of you. 
immediately he had all their attention. And he kept his promise. Every, almost every single one of them graduated from high school, and he either paid for them to go on to college or they made a career. Uh, it went from less than 10% graduation rate to over 90-some, simply because he had made that promise and kept it. Now, what would have happened if he didn't keep it? <laughs> Can you imagine all the students that had placed their hope in this guy and then graduation comes around and he didn't live up to his side of the bargain? Uh, there actually was an episode of a TV show in which something like that happened. And the guy said he would pay for all their college tuition, and then uh, the day of graduation came, they're all giving thanks to their great benefactor, and he had to tell them, actually, I can't pay for any of your education. Could you imagine not being able to keep that kind of promise? Of course, uh, this man, sort of the double-dealing, lying man that he is, is meant to be compared to our God, who never lies although he makes many promises that we often doubt, strangely enough. If you're going to doubt anyone's promise, you would think that the Lord would be the last person that we would doubt, but uh, we often do. And so God graciously condescends to his children again and again to let them know that he does indeed keep his promises. So where were we at? Last week, uh, we covered pretty much the most difficult passage in all the New Testament. And uh, most of you probably wondered where you stood with the Lord at the end, uh, making sure that uh, you weren't one of the ones that had already walked away from the faith or that are at least drifting from God and from his word. That's a constant theme that the writer of Hebrews is going to continue to bring up. He keep, continues to give these exhortations, but he's also using sort of this maritime imagery of this person who's just drifting away from land, drifting away from the promised land, if you will. And that's the imagery he's going to pick up again today as well. Um, but in verses 9 and 10, where we start in our text today, he's just finished giving this very difficult uh, word to them of those who have already walked away and warning them not to follow in the same footsteps. He says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, notice he calls them beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Now, if you remember, I've actually preached on this text already a few weeks ago. I took it out of order in order to address uh, some of our deacons and, 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 and set them up as an example for all of us. Um, but two of the things he, he points out, and I just want to point this out to you again before we go on past these verses, is that he sees their service unto the Lord and unto the saints and their love for the Lord and the love for the saints. This is clearly some evidence of the fruit of God at work in their midst. Uh, and yet there's a time in which um, uh, Martin Luther would say, we, we, we ought to be able to see some fruit in our life, evidence of the Spirit at work, but sometimes we really just have to rely upon complete naked faith in Christ alone. And that's where he's at today. So although he has given them some encouragement, having seen some fruit of, in their lives, he's also saying, but ultimately, you have to look to Christ. The promise of God is fulfilled in Christ and Christ alone. And so that's where he's going today. But before he does that, I have to give you a little bit of background lesson. Can you bear with me for maybe two minutes to explain to you the life of Abraham that leads up to this next section that he's about to explain, the, the, the passage that Mark just read in Genesis 22. If you remember, 
Abraham was called to leave his home and his family when he was 75 years old. That seems kind of an old age, but back then people lived a little bit longer than we do today. He was called to leave his home, to leave Ur of the Chaldeans, and to make his way southwest to the promised land, to Canaan. And he did. Abraham believed God's promise. God promised him that if he, if he did this, God would make him into a great nation, would bless him, multiply his children, and would make his name great. Abraham believed him and lived in tents the rest of his life in order to keep the word that God had promised unto him. So he's 75 years old. He arrives in the promised land, and for a few years, he doesn't even have a son. And so the Lord is making promises to him that he's going to be rewarded greatly for his faith, but then Abraham says to him, Oh, Lord, what will you give me? I'm still childless. So that, ta that faith is being tested already. No child, and, and yet the Lord promises again. He, he confirms the promise, telling him to look up into the heavens and see all the stars up in the sky, and says, your children will be as many as the stars in the sky. And again, Scripture says, Abraham believed him, and the Lord credited to him as righteousness. He was, by his faith, he was declared to be righteous because he had believed the promises of God. But still, more years pass. Now Abraham's 86 years old. 11 years later, Abraham still doesn't have a child, not a single one. And Sarah begins to take things in her own hands, if you remember, and encourages Abraham, why don't you take my handmaiden and uh, you can have a child that way. And Abraham says, okay, not a good idea. And uh, he bears Ishmael. Still, more years pass by. Now he's 99 years old. The Lord promises him again, you will have a son. He's like, well, I already have a son. You will have a son through Sarah, your wife. And when Abraham hears that, he just starts to laugh. Again, Isaac means laughter. And he says, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old and to a wife who is 90? And he pleads with God, just bless Ishmael. Just bless Ishmael. And the Lord says, I've already blessed him, but... I'm going to bless you. And sure enough, according to his word, Abraham's 100 years old and his wife is 90. And they have a child and they name him Isaac. But God's not done with him yet. About a decade or so later, Abraham's still alive. This time, God gives him a command and says to him, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, I'd say that would be a pretty hard word for any parent to hear if you love your child, especially. Um, but this isn't just a test of Abraham's love. This is a test of whether Abraham still believes the promise that God will give to him a multitude of children through his son Isaac. Will he be willing to sacrifice his son, still believing that God will keep his word? Will he be faithful unto God and fear him above all things? And as you know, Abraham starts to make his way to Mount Moriah with his son with him. His son asks him some very good questions. <laughs> it doesn't give him the full answer. And then we see him literally he's picking up the bundle of wood. He ties his son down 
takes the knife to his throat and is ready to do what God has commanded him to do. And at that last moment, you see the angel of the Lord coming in. Stop. Points to the ram that's caught in the thicket. Now, now here's where the author of Hebrews now is, is helping us to understand something about this. He says, it's at this moment that the Lord swears an oath to Abraham. This is the important part. God has been promising him things all along, but now in addition to the promise, he swears an oath. He says, because you have done this, and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, surely multiply your offspring, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. The, the point of the author of Hebrews in discussing the history of Abraham is twofold. First of all, it shows that Abraham inherited the promise through perseverance. He continued to hold on to the promise of God by faith. So he's comparing this to those who have walked away from God, walked away from the promises of God. Abraham continued to believe the promise 20, 30 years later after God had made the promise. And it says he inherited the promises because he continued to hold on to the promises of God. Again, it, that's in comparison, contrast to those who have not done that. Again, in the context of the church that the writer of Hebrews is writing to, there are some who have left Judaism, come into the church in Christianity, profess the name of Christ, but then when they couldn't see the promises of God, couldn't hold on to them by faith, they left the church, went back to Judaism, and therefore have walked away from God, right? So he's saying, on the one hand, uh, Abraham held on to the faith. On the other point, the author is making here that we can put our faith and trust in God's promises, particularly the promise of salvation, because God not only makes these promises to us, but even swears to them that they're true. He, he, he gives an oath proving that this is true. Now, this should make you wonder a little bit. You remember reading Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, you know, it's probably not that good to be giving oaths all the time. In fact, he says, you know, normally let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than that is evil, right? Well, now he's not saying oaths altogether are bad, but the way they're doing, they were doing them were particularly bad because on the one hand, they were swearing all times because they weren't telling the truth. And so they're like, I swear, I swear like a kid would. I swear I'm telling the truth because, you know, the kid's not normally telling the truth. That's why he has to swear. But they were also not swearing in the name of God. They were purposely swearing by heaven or by the temple or by their own head instead of in the name of the Lord because they knew that if they did the name of the Lord, God would hold them accountable for it. He would judge them for not telling the truth. Now, we know in Scripture uh, that there are times in which there are legitimate oaths that are made. Even the Apostle Paul makes oaths. The Lord himself in this text is making an oath unto Abraham after he does what God commands him to do, or at least is willing to, the Lord swears to him, I swear to you on oath that I will keep the promise that I have made to you. I will bless you. I will bless your descendants after you, and you will become a great nation. Now, where does that put us now? Well, this is the sad part, that the Lord would ever have to make an oath in the first place. Why would, why would the Lord ever need to make an oath to anyone? He doesn't lie. He doesn't change. He doesn't change his mind. 
If God has said a promise, we ought to believe it, and yet he knows our nature. He knows how weak we are. He knows how quickly we falter and doubt that he even swears to this because ultimately the swearing is not just for Abraham's sake, but rather the writer of Hebrews says it's for the heirs of promise. He makes this oath so that we would believe it because we're so weak in the faith naturally. Now, who are the heirs of the promise? This is where the Apostle Paul comes in very helpfully. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, he says, If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. Again, here's what's at stake. Some in the church have walked away because of persecution. And now the writer of Hebrews is seeking to encourage those who have put their faith in Christ to continue to hold on to Christ, to continue to cling to Christ because God has sworn through Abraham that he will keep his promise and that promise is ultimately fulfilled through the ram that's caught in the thicket. This is what Mark is pointing out. Ultimately, the promises that God makes to Abraham are fulfilled in Christ. And so he gives us these reasons to be trusting in the promises of God. All right, so now let's get into some maritime imagery. I'm hoping that you were able to follow me so far. Now we're going to get into the thick of it here. The author, in a sense, is seeking to shore up our faith. Because it's so naturally weak, he gives us three really great images to help us to hold on to our faith in Christ, especially when we're fearful that we're not going to be able to. Um, after hearing the sermon on Sunday, uh, I imagine there are always some that will be asking, okay, well, how do I know that I'm not going to walk away? How do I know that I'm not going to falter? How do I know that I'm not going to stumble and, and, and never come back to the Lord? Well, now here's his word of encouragement, finally. After two weeks of beating you up, here's the words of assurance that he seeks to give you. Um, if you were to ask, why should I cling to Christ by faith? Here are the three assurances that the author gives. First, Jesus is our safe haven. Second, Jesus is our sure and steadfast anchor. And third, Jesus is our signal forerunner. I'll explain that one in a minute. It'll make sense. Let's talk about first Jesus being our safe haven. Uh, the word that's used in verse 18 is the word refuge, but it's, it's the same concept as the haven that he says that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. So what, what he's picturing here is uh, Christianity. Christianity is often uh, uh, considered from the perspective of, of living life in a boat, okay? And all of us are in a boat, if you will, our own individual boats, and we're on a storm-tossed sea. And the sky continues to get darker, and the wind continues to howl, more and more, and the waves are just in a rampage all around us, and we're wondering, is there any hope for us? Can we be saved? Can we find a refuge? Can we find a haven in that sense? And it's hard because we don't always clearly hear the voice of the Lord over the winds and the waves, and, and sometimes our compass is lost and we lose all sense of direction and we think we're going to be lost for good. But the minute, the very minute we laid our eyes on Christ in the gospel. For the first time, we found a safe haven. We caught sight of it. There is a harbor. There is a place to where we can go to know that we will be safe. 
That's what he's pointing us to. That Jesus is this safe refuge from the storms of life, from ultimately from the fear of death itself. Jesus is our safe haven. And so he says, because of this hope that we have in Christ, we have a strong encouragement to cling to Christ, knowing that he is our harbor, he is our refuge, he is our safety. So in Christ, if you will, again, the hard part is he keeps mixing his metaphors throughout uh, these chapters. But he, he'd been talking about the promised land and those who, 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 who never made it into the promised land. And so, so the promised land is sort of like that safe harbor, if you will. And he's saying you can see the promised land from afar, but ultimately it's Christ that gives us any hope, any certainty that we'll finally make it there. Without Christ, without hope in Christ, we have no hope of ever getting into the promised land. We have no hope of ever making it to shore, ever getting off of this storm-tossed sea. And it's interesting, in, in, the, in the book of Revelation, when you finally see the, John's vision of uh, the new heavens and the new earth, the one thing that's missing in the new heavens and the new earth is the sea. It's meant to picture this storm-tossed life of chaos it's no longer there because finally those who have trusted in Christ have entered into their safe haven. There's no longer any more dread, no longer any more fear of the chaos all around us, of, of the sin and the waves overwhelming us anymore because we found our refuge in Christ. So he, this is sort of the, the theme in which he's setting us up for. So now then he points us secondly to Christ as our sure and steadfast anchor. Because we've not yet reached the shore, We've seen it from afar. We haven't reached it yet. How then do we find any sense of security knowing that we haven't made it there yet? Will we make it? In that sense, now he points to the imagery of the anchor. And he says, the hope that we have in Christ is that sure and steadfast anchor. So when a seaman drops the anchor into the waters below, he doesn't see it anymore. He has to trust by faith that the anchor will do its job, that it will anchor the ship to the point where it's not direct, being dragged against the rocks, that it will not be overwhelmed by the storm, but, but unless, instead uh, will be safe throughout. And so the strange, though, again, he's mixing his metaphors. Normally when you think of dropping anchor, you think of dropping it down into the water. Instead, the way he phrases this, the anchor is going up into heaven into the very holy of holies in God's temple. So instead of the, this long chain going down in the water below, it's going up into heaven, and it's anchored into paradise. He said anyone who has trusted in Christ has an anchor in heaven, letting him know that he's secure, he's safe in heaven because he's trusted in Christ. And he doesn't have to worry about it. Because the anchor is doing the job. Christ has done it all. He's already done it. You just have to trust in that anchor. That he will keep the promises that he has made unto you. He says, because if you have this anchor, you have a great confidence. That you could not have on your own. It has to come through Christ. So no matter how much the waves whip up, no matter how dark the sky grows... No matter how small your ship is and how battered it is because of sin, you have an anchor that's holding tightly to heaven, 
holding tightly to the promised land, and it will not let you go. Uh, it, it, it makes perfect sense. Did you realize that, you know, most people today will wear a cross around their neck, you know, as a symbol of their faith in Christ? Um, in the early church, it wasn't the cross. It was rather the anchor. Very prominent symbol in the early church. In fact, if you go to the Roman catacombs, even to this day, you can see on a number of the, uh, of the, the burial spots, anchors everywhere. There's one particular, um, her name is Priscilla. 60 anchors all over her, her tomb. It's a constant saying, this, this is my faith. This is my hope. It's in Christ and Christ alone. Uh, I mentioned to you uh, a number of weeks ago when we first started on the drifting concept that the, the flag of Rhode Island is supposed to symbolize the same thing, right? The flag of Rhode Island is a, a, a white flag, and then on that white flag is a golden anchor, and there's a blue ribbon underneath written in bright gold letters, hope. Why? They get it from here. That our hope is in Christ. If only the leaders of Rhode Island knew that today. The early fathers did. And they put their trust in Christ. If we trust in Christ, we have an anchor for our soul that will not let us go, that he will keep us safe until the end. If you trust in Christ. Not in yourself, but in Christ. Then finally, in verse 20, he also talks about this concept of Jesus being a forerunner. Still using maritime language here. Um, he says in verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We'll get into the Melchizedek stuff again next week. I won't touch too much on it today. But basically, a forerunner in ancient Greek harbors, um, they were often cut out by the sea uh, through sandbars over which a larger ship could never make it over the sandbar until the, the tide had grown up again uh, higher. And so most ships were in, in danger of trying to get past that sandbar until the waters were, were much higher. So what would happen is there, these much smaller ships that were called forerunners uh, were sent ahead of time over the sandbars and, and would take the anchor of the larger ship and anchor it into the harbor to keep it safe. And it was meant to be a sign of the future security of the ship that's still out in the waters. They can't quite make it there just yet. And so when he's describing Jesus as our forerunner, Jesus has already gone into heaven in advance of us. He's already died. He's already been buried. He's already been raised to life. He's already ascended up into heaven. And he's entered into the Holy of Holies behind the curtain saying that now we have access there and now we have a seal of our entrance into heaven as well. Now, for those of you who have been reading in Numbers this week, most of you, I know, in the book of Numbers, maybe you read about the Kohathites, which is one of the uh, divisions of the Levites. And if you remember, their main job is to basically carry the furniture that goes in the tabernacle. So that includes the Ark of the Covenant, that includes the, the table of showbread and the candlesticks and, and, and the, uh, the, the golden altar of incense as well as the bronze altar. They're to carry all of these things. But what it's hard to imagine is they're never actually allowed to see any of these things. They're never allowed to go into the tabernacle. They're never allowed to touch them or even look at them upon pain of death. And so the priests have to go in first and cover them all with all of these fancy coverings so that you can't even see them, let alone touch them. And then finally the Kohathites can carry them to the next place, and then the priest has to do all the uncovering and put them back in their proper place each time. But the point is, 
only the priest could go behind the curtain at any point to even see the paradise of God. The Levites could carry the furniture. The ordinary Israelite could never go back there. But what is astounding in this passage is that not just a Levite can now go, not just an Israelite can go, but even us filthy Gentiles who were excluded from any aspect of the people of God, any aspect of the temple of God. He says not only has he gone there in advance of us, but he's guaranteed our place there as well. If we trust in Christ. So again, if, if, if in any way uh, any of us have any concern about our salvation and, 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 and whether or not we will ever make it into heaven if you continue to look at the Christian life as a ship, as a s small boat, if you will, um, the problem is our, we're just not strong enough to make it to shore. Our oars aren't long enough. Our anchor isn't strong enough of our own accord. And we don't even have enough zeal or effort to make it there. We think we do, but we don't. We don't want to do what God calls us to do, not in the way that it's needed to get to shore. We all would run out of energy way too quickly. The, the beauty of this passage is that he's saying, it's not you. It's Christ. It's all Christ. Christ is your safe haven. He's your refuge. Christ is your anchor. He is the one who, who keeps you grounded. Christ ultimately is the forerunner who promises that if you trust in him, if he's gone, so will you. You'll make it if you trust in Christ. But you have to cling to Christ. It's not just one prayer that you prayed when you were 10 years old. That you continue to look to Christ, even as the, your ship begins to, to roll and to shake from the wind and the storms and everything else that goes on in our lives on a regular basis. Who do you call out to? Who do you ask for help? Who are you relying upon? Who are you trusting? Is it Christ? Abraham inherited the promises because he continued to hold fast to the promise of God in Christ Jesus. He says it's the same for us. Why? Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Because all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. They are true because Christ has made them true on our behalf. Not because we're good enough to get in, not because we're strong enough to get in, not because we're zealous enough to get in, but simply because we hold tightly to Christ. Christ is our Savior. Christ is our refuge. Christ is our anchor. If you're at all afraid that you won't make it, don't try harder. <laughs> Look to Christ. He is the guarantee of our salvation. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that you would help us to, to understand these, these very deep truths that the writer of Hebrews is trying to help us to, to grasp. Lord, we pray that we would not trust in ourselves, that we would not just put forth more effort and try to be good again and fail again and and doubt and wonder again, we, we pray instead, O oh Lord, that you would help us to see that Christ is our salvation, that Christ is our security, Christ is our safety. Lord, by the power of the Spirit, work in us to believe the promises of God. 